and spring up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread We're coming to the end of this story, so it makes sense in a way to go back to the beginning. To Oregon, Wisconsin, on a Saturday, February 28, 1970. Early side, evening, still. We're outside the largest and most elegant house in town. You know it by now, a proud Queen Anne Victorian. Bone-cold, Wisconsin. It might as well be deep January, even with the wood violets pushing up under the snow. In the kitchen of that house, Suzanne Stordock is writing a note to her teenage son, David. Hey, Shag. If you go to work early, there are some donuts on the countertop. Help yourself within reason. Save a couple for me. Then Suzanne heads out for Saturday night. League night. Bowling and drinks with her husband, Vern, and plenty of their neighbors. A 17-year-old, shaggy-haired David rolls into the kitchen. Energetic and confident, a kid about to head out for a night of fun with his friends and his girlfriend. Maybe he grabs a donut, takes a bite. Maybe he sees the note and smiles and scribbles his own message on that piece of paper. I've gone out goofing around with my girlfriend and some other guys. See you later. P.S. I left my car at home. Soon enough, he's gone. David heads to Madison for his big Saturday night in the big city. For a pack of teenagers in 1970, that's adventure right there, getting a hippie to buy them beers. Hey man, any chance you could score some beers? No problem, dude. David and his friends are on their way to being adults, but they're not really jonesing for responsibility. The federal government is talking about ending the draft, maybe. The Beatles have just released Hey Jude. In a time of great change, the possibilities of a whole new decade stretch out in front of them. And tonight, Thanks to a hippie, they've got beers. Miles away from David and his friends, 20-year-old Dorothy Marsick has left the big city for the weekend. She's in the town of Beloit, spending the night in her grandma's house. Grandma Stordak is a pillar, one of her reliable adults. The other is Uncle Vern, out for the night in Oregon. Vern Stordock, who argues with his wife and leaves Suzanne alone at a bar after a long night out. He walks alone in the snow back to his house. The clock turns over midnight. February's over. The future is here. Suzanne Stordock sits at the sportsman's bar without her husband. In front of her is a partially consumed drink. Around about two hours later, a rifle shot will break the silence. And both a life and a boy's innocence will come to an end. Oh my God, oh my God. In New York, a young woman at art school will pick up a call from her mother that causes her to drop everything. Vern's gone. And the next morning, a college student visiting her grandma will be woken early in the morning by her mother in a state of shock and grief. Bernie's dead. In the kitchen of that big Victorian house in Oregon, Suzanne Stordock watches her son David cry out in misery. The note about donuts is still on the table. Over decades, these people, these families, will come to reckon with something that changed in just a few hours. 
with one shot. Welcome to Manslaughter. For most of a year, Dorothy Marsick had been communicating with David on and off, every month, sometimes every week. We'd talk on the phone um, once a week, we'd email, and we got, we got into Skyping after he got his computer system figured out, and it was, it, was, it was nice. It was really very satisfying. And it was just from that time that we really started to get closer. Now that connection is broken. David Briggs has died. His funeral is in Tennessee a few days before Christmas on a day cold and pouring with rain. Dorothy says she felt sorrow and shock. I was very sad when David died. I, I still miss him a lot. I just regret that I didn't go back there another time before he died. And I felt his loss. Yeah, I really got close to David. I, I mean, I always liked him when I knew him when I was in college and he was finishing high school. You know, I always thought he, he was a, a nice guy. But when we started to connect after that f- first visit, when I went there in February 2014, there was just some click there. I mean, I when I went the first time, all I wanted to do, and this was Shannon and me had decided, we wanted to know who pulled the trigger. That was all I wanted to know. Suzanne, of course, had confessed to shooting Dorothy's uncle and was sentenced to time in a mental hospital for it. Before Dorothy's first visit to that house in the eastern hills of Tennessee, she and Suzanne hadn't talked in decades. Suzanne's daughter, Donna, remembers that visit. She says that Dorothy came under false pretenses into their lives, only as a family member. I asked Donna about Dorothy's relationship with David the year before he died, She answered me by email. She wrote, We could look at that from an entirely different point of view and ask why she felt it necessary to lead a lonely 60-something man on. She didn't have to speak with him at all. He hadn't had a serious relationship with a woman since his marriage ended years earlier, and so her attention obviously flattered him. Is it any wonder he hoped she might mean it? Donna is a survivor, the oldest of Suzanne Brandon's children. She outlived her younger brothers, and she seems to have always known her job in her family. Well, they were good in my eyes all the time, but I was their protector. I was the oldest, and being a tomboy, I would beat up the bullies if they picked on them. You didn't dare pick on my brothers, you know, and and my greatest regret leaving was my two brothers leaving them behind because I had been their protector. Donna left Wisconsin for New York. She went to the Pratt Institute, an art school. Uh, Dave, who was a sensitive enough kid when I knew him when I was home, I mean, we always uh, cared about each other. He became um, rough. Donna says she felt the distance between her and her brothers, physical as well as emotional. She remembers that David loved Vern and had begun to emulate him. And after the shooting, David's friends say he changed even more. When his dad died uh, and he inherited a little bit of money from him, he bought a big Harley Davidson and rode coast to coast and 
went out and trained at the same gym as Lou Ferrigno because he was going to build up his body to prove he was this tough, macho dude that nobody could hurt, um, never mind his conditions, you know, that he was battling. When Donna left for New York, her brother Danny was still so small, and he was so different from David. I came home one time with seashells, and I said, hey, Dan, um, you want some? And he picked the most delicate, most aesthetically pleasing uh, ones that you could you could pick out of the group of seashells. And I was so impressed with his taste that was refined and very artistic. And um, and he was a poet like me, and we shared that, you know, he, he wrote poetry too. Loss can tie a family together. So the funeral did for a moment with Dorothy and Donna. In 2014, they both stood graveside for David, likely thinking about these relationships. But while Dorothy grieved, she also held something separately inside, the memory of that cold night in Wisconsin and her uncle's death. Vern Stordock kept a picture of his daughter in his wallet until he died. You know, and what do I miss most, I guess... I guess it's just being able to have a confidant that is not directly in my life every minute, like my mom. I think it would have been completely different. Shannon Stordock Hecht is now much older than her father ever was. She wonders what he would have looked like if he had gotten old. I said, I never had as much as an adult. Never sat down and had adult conversations. Although we did, you know, we had, you know, talk more than just kid conversations, but not real adult things because that was a time when there wasn't a lot of whole adult things going on it wasn't it wasn't quite like it is now or everything is instant <laughs> you know everything the news is out there right now <laughs> this is the way it is dorothy feels that suzanne's children were victims as well i mean imagine living your life knowing your mother had confessed to murdering her, her husband how how do you how do you cope with that? How do you live a normal life? I, I don't know. David's funeral was only Dorothy's second visit to Tennessee. On that trip, Dorothy wasn't just mourning. She was also still investigating. The first time she was there, Dorothy had sat down to a meal with Suzanne and with David and his sister Donna. Dorothy says she quickly understood that this family was close. He would tell me, you know, whatever we'd talked about the time before, he'd say, oh, yeah, I told my mom this, I told Donna that. And I realized every conversation we had was a four-way conversation. Well, every time we spoke, it was a four-way conversation. Dorothy remembered David coming out to talk to her in the driveway that first visit. She thought he knew more to tell her, answers about her uncle's death. Right before David died, Dorothy says he called her. They talked about Vern's death in more detail than before. He was animated. She really had the feeling he was going to tell her something dramatic. Looking back, she says she's certain what that was. He was going to confess to shooting Vern Stordock. And I just thought it was very unusual that when he's on the verge of confessing and that we were going to continue the conversation a week later, that he, he ends up dead. David's mother didn't come to his funeral. Suzanne was 85 years old at the time, bedbound, according to her daughter, Donna. Donna said Suzanne was unable to attend the funeral. Even so, Dorothy doesn't believe that. 
Yes, I saw her stand up and walk when she didn't know I was looking, taking a few steps. I don't know if the doctors came to see her or she was taken in a wheelchair, uh, but she did not go to David's funeral. For Dorothy, the timing was too close. If David was really going to confess to me about killing Vern, motivated by his mother, Suzanne would not have been happy. She spent decades after the murder hiding her past and rebuilding her life, even her name. Dorothy believes Suzanne could have caused David's death. And she believes that because even as she was standing there at David's funeral, she still believed Suzanne was a cold-blooded killer. Dorothy has imagined in detail how her Uncle Vern might have been murdered. I've spent countless hours thinking about it. There weren't cameras inside the big Oregon house in 1970. Nobody who was there has confirmed any of this happened. Dorothy says it's based on her research. For over five years, I read and reread court transcripts, police files, newspaper accounts. I visited the crime scene. I studied police diagrams of the crime scene. And I even hired a forensic expert to make a 3D representation of the crime scene. I found witnesses to incidents I think are related. From what I saw, Suzanne did not like it when Vern's mother talked to his first wife. What if he really was going to leave her? What if Vern was going to leave Suzanne and she didn't think she could stop him? I think she was a skilled manipulator. And I think she started a fight with Vern. Then I think Suzanne burned herself with a cigarette. And then I think she went to her son David's bedroom. And she said, How could he do it? How could he do it? She showed him the cigarette burn, and she told her son, Vern said this is just the beginning. He's going to kill me. First thing in the morning when he's completely sober, he's going to go and get one of his guns and shoot me in the head. Probably then David said to her, He'd never kill anyone. Let's go to the police. We can run away. His mother answered, He'll find us. He's relentless. Only you can save us, David. Then maybe she threatened suicide. There were pills in Vern's attache case from work. David would have been hysterical. But then perhaps she led David downstairs to the gun rack to his favorite gun, the Mauser. David would have set up across the hall with his rifle. She said something like, David, you know I can't live without you. Maybe she had a code word a word that made David act. And that's when I think David pulled the trigger. Sure, Suzanne confessed, but I think I know why. David wasn't as strong as Suzanne. If he got interrogated, he would have told the truth. Suzanne had a history with mental health issues. She could use that to divert attention from David, to control the story about what happened. We have no evidence any of this actually happened. Everything you've just heard is Dorothy's speculation based on her research. David testified in court that he didn't shoot Vern. Though years later, David told a friend he did and didn't deny it when confronted by another family member. Dorothy points to the forensic evidence showing Suzanne may not have been the shooter. One thing is certain. 
Suzanne was at the center of that night, and she talked about that night with at least one person, her daughter, Donna. Whether people want it to be or not, trauma can be like a glue sticking some families together. On March 1, 1970, Donna Redhead began her day in Brooklyn. Hours later, she was in a sterile, cramped police station office in Wisconsin. The police were telling her that the house her mother lived in was a crime scene. Donna would have to wait to see Suzanne. Her mother was behind bars, in a jail. Donna doesn't remember how she made her way to Madison from a life she had made in New York. She doesn't even remember how she got from the airport to the police. I, I, it shocked me. I never thought it would get that bad. I couldn't comprehend that that, that could happen, but um, uh, she was uh, in shock. She was Suzanne Stordock. In the early morning hours after Vern was shot, one of the calls Suzanne made was to Donna. Donna says she knew things were off in that grand house in Oregon. Still, she didn't think it would get as bad as it did. Certainly not at the beginning, when Vern Stordock seemed like a bit of good news in her mother's life. We welcomed Vern when he, when he showed up. He seemed like a really good guy. In the early 1960s, Suzanne was still married to Irv Gast, a guy who threatened her children, who ran around on her, who ran off and didn't come back. So looking back, Donna says it's not surprising that at first a highly decorated former law enforcement officer with a winning smile seemed like the protector they needed. I mean, we thought he was going to keep us safe from Irv. We didn't know much about his prior family. With his first family, Vern took road trips and sang songs in the car, had lunch with his daughter and laughed through water fights. But in that big house in Oregon, his stepdaughter Donna remembers nothing like that, just chaos and anger. Because from what I gather from his family, he was a wonderful guy to them, but he was not to us. He changed. It was not um, a good experience living with him. And so I don't know when Vern started totally becoming this monster, but somewhere along the line he did, and he wasn't that way when they married that I know of. For one thing, Donna says, Vern drank. A lot. They fought more when he was drunk, which was often. She believes it caused her mother to drink more, too. He would like her to go to bars with him, and they would come home drunk. Later in life, when she wasn't married to Vern, several sources say Suzanne didn't drink at all. She was not a real drinker until she married him. And Donna says Vern's job as an investigator sometimes took him away for weeks. Once he stayed away for a month, which he explained by saying he was busting a prostitution ring hundreds of miles north in the town of Hurley. According to Donna, her mother would question Vern when he returned about what exactly being undercover meant. About the Hurley trip, Vern wouldn't answer whether he slept with other women. He said it was his job. Donna was 16, and Vern was her stepfather. But Donna says he didn't look at her like a parent. I felt creeped out by his um, attention to my um, physique, <laughs> shall I say. 
we we would sit at the dining room table and he would outright look at look at my body my breasts and ask me you know well did i let boys touch them or you know what it went further donna says did the boys at school touch her body donna says vern would ask that too while he stared and even further what would happen if he touched her breasts and i i uh and mom would try to stop him, and then they would end up fighting. I think, in a way, she was trying to defend me. But I, um, I just got the sense that I was no longer safe around him, and so I had to leave. Another girl says she had a similar experience. Her name is Kate. She asked that we keep her last name out of it for privacy. Kate's family was close with Vern and Sue, close enough that her father gave Vern a rifle for deer hunting the Mauser. They spent holidays with the Stordocks. Kate knew Vern only at these big gatherings. They weren't close. A boy got Kate pregnant when she was 14. Her parents sent her away to a state home for wayward girls in La Crosse. Kate says one day Vern showed up there and took her out to dinner. She says Vern sat too close to her in a big U-shaped booth. He put his hand on her. He put his arm around her and didn't move it until she pushed it away. He told Kate that her parents knew about his visit. Kate says her parents told her that wasn't true, and Kate says he was being inappropriate. Added up, Donna says big and little alarms were ringing inside of her, louder and louder trying to tell a story. So when she says she couldn't believe what happened, she also had already started to. During her last Christmas home, Christmas of 1969, one incident stood out. During the time I had been home, Mom tried to tell me that things weren't okay. Uh, I came home and there were cuts on Vern's face and neck, and I said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I cut myself shaving, which I thought was sort of odd, down on the neck. And Mom said, no, tell Donna the truth. And I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's, what do you mean the truth? And, and uh, she said, I cut him. And I said, you did what? And he said, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I cut myself shaving. And he pretty much did his best to cut the conversation off, but not before she told me that he hurt her. Phone calls can mean trouble. Donna had been back in New York for just a few weeks after the holiday break when her mother dialed her up early on the morning of March 1st. That call would bring Donna back to Wisconsin. Vern was gone. Donna asked her mother, what happened? Did Vern leave again like he had before? Vern was gone. Donna asked questions. Did he leave again? Had something happened? To every question, her mother said the same thing. Vern was gone. Vern was gone. Finally, Donna asked one more question whether Vern would come back. Her mother said no. Donna said again, what's happened? I shot Vern. On her arrival in Madison, cops told Donna she could see her mother after she saw something else first. Donna says she saw pictures of her mother's back showing scars from where Vern put out his cigarettes all across her back. Old ones, as well as at least one fresh one. She still didn't really know what had happened before, with the fighting and the cuts and the blood she heard about at Christmas. But finally, she says she saw her mother's pain. 
And when I finally saw her, I just cried. I said, I can't believe you were being hurt like that. I'm so sorry I didn't understand. You know, I didn't. I couldn't, I couldn't help her at that point, you know. Donna believes what happened the last night of Vern Stordock's life was rooted in the unhealthy relationship her mother had with Vern. And she says the story isn't complicated. Uh, you know, women were supposed to be subservient, and so she tried, but eventually she couldn't. This was not um, uh, so much a subservient uh, relationship as a war zone. She tried to be what people expected of her back in the 50s and 60s and tried to be the, you know, the good wife that supported the man. And she had this piercingly, wonderfully humorous and great intellect that um, just kept being stifled and betrayed by these guys. And um, I know I was there. After visiting her mom in jail, Donna walked into the Oregon house again. She still remembers the horror of the crime scene, the spatters, the blood, the violence. I think she was progressively becoming mentally ill, and um, the situation drove her beyond herself. I mean, I believe the final analysis was that she had a psychotic break. I don't have a clue. I don't know how all of this transpired. But I've heard since then um, in abuse situations where um, you can't get out of it psychologically, somehow you can't leave the abuser. And so it's simpler to end the life of the abuser, which is horrible. But I know mom said when she picked up that um, deer rifle and shot it, she said words that other women have used, which is, you'll never hurt me again. Donna knows that her cousin Dorothy doesn't think her mother pulled the trigger. Donna knows that Dorothy has painted her mother as a monster. And I don't like speaking ill of the dead. That's why I'm trying to say I, I've, I've tried to find peace and look at these people. They're human beings. I don't think anybody set out to be such a mean bully or, or a drunk or to commit murder. Um, how did that happen? I wish I knew how to establish truth beyond, like, Dorothy's truth or my truth. And, and um, I just wish there was some way through all this that we could get at truth beyond all of us. We've heard multiple versions of Vern's murder, multiple motives, different views of a woman's life after she confessed to killing her husband. After 50 years, how is it possible to prove which one is the truth? to prove who Suzanne really was. The one person who has the very best answer about what happened in that house is Suzanne. Suzanne is now gone too. The obituary says Dr. Suzanne Brandon, age 88, passed on March 23, 2017 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Among the living, comments left online about Suzanne Brandon's death reflect admiration and even love. I am terrifically saddened by my friend's passing, in which I just discovered recently. Gosh, she was beyond terrific, and we shared so many wonderful and challenging experiences as we navigated our legal education. 
She drove us on our first day of law school in a Rolls Royce. Her smile would light up a room, even change your mood, and would tell you to sit down and let's talk. She sure did teach me some things about being a kind-hearted, caring person. I'll never forget her and her last words to me days before God called her home. I love you, Sonia. Rest in peace, my sweet angel. I'll see you and Mr. Paul when I get to heaven. No matter where Suzanne went or what she did in life, the obituary says, she could get people laughing with sarcastic, salty remarks. We will miss her wit and charm, her generosity, and her love. May she go with God. It says Suzanne was survived by three children, Donna, a stepson, and a daughter from her fifth marriage, and seven grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren. In her final years, Suzanne Brandon made peace with her son, David. Donna says they had been estranged until he was in his late 50s. Some people she loved died before Suzanne did. Named in the obituary were Suzanne's fifth husband, Paul, and her sons, David and Daniel. Not mentioned were Suzanne's first three husbands, the fathers of her children. Also missing was Vern Stordock. Hardly surprising, given that Suzanne seems to have spent the years after the murder trying to move past it. Maybe she finally did. Here's a story Donna remembers, from a time not long after her mother turned 80. She was visiting Suzanne and Paul, the keeper. And one day, Paul hauled some of the court records related to Vern Stordock's shooting out to the living room. Out of the blue, he just said, you know, your mom has carried this guilt and this hurt long enough. Let's set her free. And I didn't know at first what he meant, but he meant burn all the files, all the police reports, all the whatever evidence up. Just just let's get rid of it. Donna remembers her mother cried, and she says she agreed to help. She can't remember now how many boxes there were. Even after 40 years, it was a lot. Together, she and Paul and Suzanne put them into the fire. And so we just said, okay, it's time to, to, to tell her, you don't have to carry that anymore. You're forgiven. When her mother died, Donna contacted Dorothy Marsick. I took a couple days to figure out where the funeral was going to be, which was Minneapolis, which was where she had lived with her fifth husband. I flew there that morning. There were two events in one day, a small graveside ceremony and later a funeral. Dorothy went to both. The first one was very small, close family, and Dorothy. I got a rental car and I drove to the cemetery. That was going to be the first place. And there was just Donna and her son and me, and then the rabbi came, had a small service, and then there was several hours gap in between that and the funeral, which was going to be at the synagogue. Death again brought Donna and Dorothy together. Donna was so shaken and in such pain she could barely stand up. Her son had to keep holding on to her. And I said, let's find a restaurant. Um, I want to buy you lunch and find some place that you really love. So we, we found some place that had natural food that was fairly close to the synagogue. And her son and I just tried to get her to eat because she hadn't eaten for a few days. She was weak. And I listened to her. She was crying. I kept running and getting napkins um, for her to use for her tears. And I felt really bad for her. Donna remembers that her mother's funeral was small, 25 people, smaller than she would have wanted. 
Donna blames herself for that. Her husband had a stroke. He was laid up in Tennessee when her mother died. She couldn't find her mother's contacts. So she says she was scrambling to pull together the memorial. On that day, Dorothy helped. And then she said she wanted some pictures to show at the funeral. And she had um, one copy, but she wanted to have other copies. So I went, I found a framing place, a copy framing place, and, and got copies made and had them put in frames and extra copies for other members of the family. And I brought them back. And she was very appreciative. I mean, I, felt, I just wanted to do something to ease her pain and, and make it easier for her. On one level, Dorothy found she could relate to loss as a daughter and mother herself. Because I know it's very difficult to lose your mother. I, I was quite young when my mother died. But as a friend of mine said, you, you never know how long the umbilical cord is until your mother dies. But under the surface, Dorothy's pain continued. As she stood at the funeral, surrounded by Suzanne's family and friends, she was struggling. I was, there were emotions in the direction of, of Donna and her son. And, and then there were the other emotions that were about, this was the woman who confessed to murdering my uncle and basically got away with murder. And when the rabbi was up there giving her eulogy, and these were words that I had heard from Suzanne before, so I know what the source of them were. Uh, she said, well, Suzanne said um, she, she did everything in life that she always wanted to do. And I had to restrain myself not to raise my hand and go, oh, you mean like getting away with murder? But, of course, that's totally inappropriate, and I didn't do it. Inside, Dorothy was angry. I don't like it. My uncle was not allowed to live, and she did live. And she used money from his assets and insurance policy to be able to go to school and not to have to really work the rest of her life. If there's something unjust about it, I think I was pretty angry about it. Now, I'm not sure angry. I just feel sadness about the lack of justice and also the fact that after he died, she claimed that he'd abused her. The one who lives gets to tell the story. And that's what the narrative was for 40 years, that he had abused her, that she had a psychotic break and she pulled the trigger. I don't think I'll ever get my head around why my uncle literally threw his whole life away. Because once he started up with Suzanne, seven years later, half his brains were splattered over their bedroom wallpaper, and he was dead. Vern Stordach was the most stable force in Dorothy Marsick's life in 1970. He was her one constant, and then he was gone forever. When people experience a sudden trauma, a sudden loss, there's the grief associated with it. That's expected. On top of that, when the person you lose is a cornerstone of your life, the compounded stress and strain is indelible. Suzanne and Dorothy had once been close. Dorothy sent Suzanne a birth announcement, 
Suzanne responded with a gift. Standing by Suzanne's grave, Dorothy says that was all gone. I can't say I'm exactly sad that she died. I'm not happy. It's just nothing, you know. It's... One gun and one bullet took the life of one man that night in 1970. Vern Stordock's death changed permanently the lives of the people around him, mostly women. Some of them sought to close the door on the past. But for Dorothy, reinvestigating the case has made that door almost impossible to close. And it's just something you learn to live with, but it's always there, and the pain is very, very deep. Someone murdered my uncle, and Suzanne confessed to it. I still cry when I think of Uncle Vernie. It just comes over me without warning. I'll never again see him smile at me, put his arm around me, tell me jokes, or look at me with those eyes of love. That was taken away from me. And that's a thing that I think people don't realize when we talk about murder and so on. If you haven't been through it, you don't know that it it never goes away. You don't go, oh, well, let's move on with our life. That hangs over you. As a person of faith, I know I should forgive. David, oh, David, I never had any problem forgiving David. He was a kid and just collateral damage in the whole situation. But Suzanne, who was involved in the murder, who profited from it, actually told me the murder had improved her life. I'm still working on that forgiveness. I don't know how long it will take or if I can ever get there. I'm sleeping and riding Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franzlau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordach-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martine Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clear Cut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Harlan, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondering. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. 